Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. Can you reach for your Bibles? We've got a 1 Peter. We've been going through this book, or this letter, as a church, where um, I think we're like six, six parts into a million-part series. It's, this, book is, this book is for the age. This book is for now. Um, Peter is writing to a people who feel exiled in a strange new world. Can you hear me? Are we all good? Are we all good? And, and there, there is something prophetic about it. We're going to look at seven or eight verses, verse 13 to verse 22 of chapter 1. Oh, sorry, 1 Peter. Did you not get that? Oh, forgive me. There we go, 1 Peter. I'm going to talk a little bit longer now for you all to find it. That's what I was doing. I was stalling. I'm a pro. <laughs> okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Um, I'm going to read it from the NIV, but then I'm going to preach from the ESV. They're not too different, actually, in this passage, but here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on him, since you call him a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty ways of the world handed down for you from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the, found, before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Give me one second just to find that same book in my color-coded Bible. <laughs> Which, if you ever look at a preacher's Bible, without his Bible, you won't be able to know what he's doing tonight. Right, so let's start with this. Well, let's talk about Dunkirk. Not the film, the event, 1940. Britain have got nine days to evacuate the entire expeditionary force. At the time, they're on the Belgian border. Um, it's going to be known as Operation Dynamo, and the fact that it's going to succeed is a complete miracle because at this point in the war, things aren't going very well. Germany are sur uh, have surrounded the expeditionary force, and the only way of escape is going to be across the sea. Had Germany attacked, 340,000 Allied troops would have been wiped out as they're crossing the sea, essentially, they'd have been, well, what, sitting ducks. Knowing the danger they were in, there was a, there was a British uh, journalist called George Well who wrote to a soldier asking him, what will you do if you're captured? And the response by telegram by this soldier to George Well has become quite famous, not just for the, 
the bravery that it conveys, but the, um, but the, the brevity of it. Just three words. What will you do if you're captured? His response was, but if not. But if not. Now, if you don't know what that is a reference to, uh, you're okay. Neither did I, and it's a lot more embarrassing for me because I'm a church pastor who's meant to know these things. It's a reference to uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel is, um, is a book that's found in the Old Testament, written uh, describing the events 600 years before Jesus is born. King Nebuchadnezzar is this despot who's taken over the world. He's plundered everything. He's moving systematic, systematically through every country surrounding Babylon, taking everything that's worth taking, taking the gold, taking the people, taking it what he wants back to Babylon. And to demonstrate his godlike kingship, he demands that the entire world bow to him at certain points in the day. So he erects this 90-foot golden statue. We think of himself, probably of himself. And as the city and therefore the world hear the music, and when they hear the tunes playing, the whole city is meant to bow before the king, the god, Nebuchadnezzar. One of the countries that had been ransacked was Judah. And three of the men that had been taken were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way... I'm Welsh. <laughs> I know you say that differently. <laughs> These three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm just going to normalize that, okay? They refused. There's no way they're going to bow to this 90-foot golden statue of a false god. How could they? Because they were Hebrews. They worshipped the true God. They worshipped the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. They would not blaspheme him by bowing to a false god no matter the cost. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are summoned to the king, and then this is what happens in Daniel chapter 4. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? O Nebuchadnezzar, they replied, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not. Now, why am I telling you this story? Why am I telling these two stories? Because I think both of them perfectly illustrate what it is that Peter is, is calling for in this passage. Like the first 12 verses of 1 Peter are Peter sort of glorying and, 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 and being dazzled by the gospel and the hope that we have because of the gospel, like the, the imperishable, undefiled, unfading resurrection land that we get to enter into because Jesus has died and Jesus is risen. But now in verse 13, he begins to apply it and it's going to continue like this for the rest of the letter. In fact, the whole of the rest of the letter, I think, can be summed up by two words that you find in verse 15. Here they are, the rest of 1 Peter, it goes like this, be holy. Because of everything that Jesus has done, because Jesus is risen, because he's called you and he's invited you into his resurrection land, live as resurrection people, be holy. Well, I wonder how you respond to that word holy. How does that make you feel? What goes on inside of you when you... And the reason I ask is because if you were... 
if you're like me and you weren't brought up in a church context, that word holy is just synonymous for anything that's vaguely spiritual or anything that's vaguely religious, right? But if you are brought up in a church context, I think there can be wrongly, but often, an association with that word that can, that can just feel heavy. Like we know, don't we, that this gospel of grace is just freedom and, and joy and life. And yet that word holy and that call to be holy, it can feel um, old-fashioned. It can feel stuffy. It can feel funless. It can feel legalistic. And I don't really know what to do with it in relation to the freedom that I have in Jesus that is not holiness. Let me tell you what holiness is. Holiness is a protest movement. Holiness is a defiant nonconformity. Holiness is, a, is, the, is the nonconformist spirit of three Hebrews who say no, whatever the cost. Holiness is is the nonconformist spirit of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this, this defiance to not bow, to not conform to the world, but to live set apart for, the, for their God, no matter what the cost. Now, we live a very long way away from, you know, uh, 6 BC, 600 BC Babylon, right? There's no golden statues. Or maybe not, right? Maybe there's no statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But maybe there are plenty of golden statues. We live in a post-Christian world that is cancelling Jesus. And in Jesus' place, as Lord of all, on the plinth is self. Self is Lord now. So you might say that there isn't a golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. No, and the reason is because each of us is invited to build our own. Each of us is invited daily to bow before the 90-foot statue of ourselves. Self is Lord God, and self expects you to bow. Self has given his own commandments, or her own commandments. Let me read them to you. They're on the screen, I think. Number one, your mind is the source and standard of truth. Commandment number one, so no matter what, trust yourself. Hashtag the answers are within. Number two, the second commandment, your emotions are final. So never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Hashtag follow your heart. Number three, you are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Hashtag live your truth. Number four, you are supreme. So always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag YOLO. Number five, you are the summum bonum, the standard of goodness. You are. So don't let anyone else oppress you with those antiquated notions of being a sinner who needs grace. Hashtag never change. And number six, you are your own creator. So use that limitless creative power and the technology of our society to craft your identity and remake yourself in your own image. Hashtag authenticity. The writer Matthew Roberts has, has written a, a, a part amazing and part infuriating book on this subject. 
he makes an interesting comment, right? He's, he, as he's talking about this, this worship of self, he says, the ultimate expression, let me read it to you, actually. That's going to be better, isn't it? Devotion towards this God, self, it's not on the screen, don't worry, um, is demonstrated nowhere so much as in the indulgence of sexual desire of every sort. So the point is, the way that the worship of self is expressed most often in our society is by freely expressing the sexual desires that come from within the self. Conversely, he says, to expect or call for the denial of these desires is the closest thing to blasphemy that secularism knows. There is no God but self, and pleasure is her prophet. And there is a fiery furnace for anyone who says otherwise. We may call it a secular culture. But I think it's highly, highly religious. Everyone's invited to bow and to worship their own golden statue. And it's into this culture that King Jesus calls his people to be holy. What is holiness? Well, the first thing we've got to point out, like, like Chris and, and, and Greg have both said, is that holiness is firstly to relate it into God. You know, be holy for I am holy, verse 15 says. In relation to God, holiness is, um, is the, is, it means like the sheer godness of God. Like God is holy, he is set apart, he is different. I mean, literally, that's what, that's what the word means. Set apart, different to us. So in all the ways that you and I are creaturely, he is creator. In all the ways that, that you and I are um, weak and needy, he is almighty. You and I are restricted in space and time he is all present everywhere he is eternal we are finite and limited he is all glorious all knowing all powerful he is holy and peter's point is because we belong to him we too are called to be holy not by somehow becoming the creator but by being set apart from the world around us we're called to live different lives to stand out from the culture by reflecting his heart and his character. And we do that by pushing against the, the cultural pressures and the internal passions that, that, that rise up within, and we gradually live out what it means to realize that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him, our faithful creator. And... Peter would say that nowhere is off limits. He goes, you know, do not be conformed. Be holy in all your conduct, he says in verse 15. His call is all-encompassing. There isn't going to be a corner or a part of your life that, that is off limits to this holiness. Like, you know, we want to do that, don't we? I want to compartmentalize the call to holiness to the bits of my life that I can manage. So I'll put on a good show on a Sunday morning and I'll and I'll behave right in front of Christians, and I'll, you know, in, certain, in front of my family, I know what I'm doing, but all of my life, Peter says, let there be no part of your life that's off limits. We'll skip the Tim Chester quote. We'll just keep going. Why does holiness matter? Um, I mean, ultimately, what is it? It's the set apartness. Why does it matter? Well, because it's nothing less than the glory of God that's at stake. The glory of God shines through the, the holiness of his people. You see that in chapter 2. Like flick on and you, you see it just in chapter 2 verse 12. He doesn't use the word, but this is the point that Peter's getting at. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, 
on the day of visitation. The point is, as we live lives set apart for the living God, there is something about that distinctive life that, that grabs the attention of the people that we live amidst. As we live for our king, as we obey his word, as we live our lives with an awareness of his, of his presence and his, and his nearness, and as, we, and as we surrender our will to his. Like, let's not pretend that isn't a wrestle, right? As we wrestle to surrender our will, to line it up with his, then there is something about the goodness of Jesus' reign that will be sensed by the people around us. I mean, if I put it, maybe I can put it like this. There is something about Jesus that will become more real to the cynical world that we inhabit. You know, like, and that is, that is just so my story as I think about as I became a Christian. Like, so I became a Christian because I got invited along to a youth group on a, on a, on a Saturday evening. And I had friends in, in high school that just kept bombarding me with the gospel. And... I was invited into the life of a family that was so profoundly uncool. And yet, Jesus was a very real presence amidst them. I would sit and have dinner with them and they would make up the numbers by, I don't know, give me a Sunday lunch and go, oh, somebody else has turned up, so we'll, go, oh, we'll get those frozen onion bargies and we'll make up the numbers there. And it was all about sharing with one another, not just about putting on a show. Because Jesus welcomes people. And there was just something about the gradual exposure to Christ through his people, their holiness, that made Christ plausible to the most cynical man that I have ever met, right? This guy. That's what Peter's talking about. The glory of God shines through the holiness of his people. What has it been set apart? Why does it matter, the glory of God? And how do we get there? Three ways in the text now, okay? Number one, how do we get there? Number one, we think deeply. How do we become holy? We think deeply on what is to come. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we grow in holiness? It begins by thinking deeply about what's ahead. Everything that Peter has described in verses 1 to 12. You know, the undefiled, imperishable, unfading glory that is ahead. The, the reality that one day you are going to see Jesus' face. I was sat with a woman this morning who told me that she's going to give up on the cancer treatment. And it was breaking my heart, but the joy that was being communicated in her eyes. The thought of one day seeing her maker very soon. This isn't a pipe dream. This isn't hit and hope. This is blood-bought and resurrection-proved. God's people will one day see God, and we won't be frightened of him. We will be welcomed by him. Peter says, think about this. Dwell on this. Let your imaginations run wild as you consider this. One day you will meet your maker, and you will believe that he has loved you from before the foundations of the earth. All of the doubt is gone in an instant. All of the death that we live in is gone. All of the sadness is erased. Christ is all. We get to see him. Think deeply on these things. 
let your imagination go crazy. Like, there's this, um, the reason I say that is because I was reading Jonathan Edwards this week. Like, you know, no, you don't have to do these things, by the way. <laughs> but I, I was reading Jonathan Edwards this week, and it's a bit of a long quote, but if you're up for it, let's, let's do this together, because I love the way that he's read the Bible, and then he lets his imagination go, okay? So hold on. Feel this. In that resurrection morning, when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all his brightness and glory, he will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of his Father with all his holy angels. This is a wedding procession. He's coming to get his bride. And at that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, shall the whole elect church complete as to every individual member and each member with the whole person, both body and soul, and both in perfect glory, we will ascend up to meet the Lord in the air, to be forever with the Lord. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite his spouse to enter in with him into the palace of his glory, which he has been preparing for her from the foundation of the world and shall take her by the hand and lead her in with him. And this glorious bridegroom and bride shall, with all their shining ornaments, ascend up together into the heaven of heavens, the whole multitude of glorious angels waiting upon them. And this son and daughter of God shall, in their united glory and joy, present themselves together before the Father, and they shall together receive the Father's blessing and shall thenceforward rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, immutable, and everlasting glory in the love and embraces of each other in their shared enjoyment of the love of the Father. I mean, I just, I mean, honestly, if that doesn't do it for you, <laughs> blame the guy who read it. There is a day coming when we are welcomed into the embrace of Jesus Christ and the joy of the love of the Father will be known to us. We will taste and see finally that, that the Lord is good. And, and what Peter is saying is dwell on this. Like, gird up the loins of your mind. Don't just let this be a Sunday to Sunday thing. Like, think deeply on this. Nobody scrolls their way into this. You can't swipe and just expect this to happen to you. You've got to dwell on it. You've got to think about it. Now, how does dwelling on it make me holy? Well, think about it. Like, when you know that, when you've got this vision of a, of a sinless, deathless eternity on the front of your mind, when you know that where you're heading is sinless and deathless, it is, it is morally impossible to choose anything that is defiled and deathly. When you know that's where you're heading, when, when you know that's where this world is heading, you, you want to line up with that. You can't help but make choices that are choices of life and blessing. You don't want death and defilement anymore. When you know life is ahead, you choose life, right? Hope will change you. So let me, let me give you an example, right? When you know that one day justice will roll like a river, Right? One day, justice rolls like a river from the throne of the Father 
and the waters of justice will spread through the city. When you know justice will be done, then it, is, it becomes impossible to be indifferent to injustice anymore. You can't help but be captured by the hurts of the poor. You can't help but care about the vulnerable and the oppressed. You can't turn a blind eye anymore because that's where you're heading. You want to be facing in that direction, right? It makes you a bigger person when you breathe this in. When you breathe in this vision of where Christ is taking the universe, you, you grow. Not just, as a, you know, not just as an individual into some sort of ridiculous, like personal, spiritual project. This is not about me and my morality anymore. You start to grow outwards towards other people. You start caring about their flourishing. You start caring less about yourself and more about other people because you want them to enjoy the life that the Lord has shared with you. You can't help but stand in that direction. And by the way, when you know that this inheritance ahead, this unfading glory that is kept in heaven for you, when you know that is coming, what does that do to you? It makes you the most ridiculously generous person in your world. You cannot look ahead to an inheritance that is unfading and be tight-fisted. It makes us ridiculously generous. It makes us able to give away the things that matter most. It makes us able to live with a sense of abandonment and, and freedom. Freedom from greed and freedom from self-protection. Can you see how this vision of eternity has got this huge moral impact that follows after, right? That's the first thing we do. We think deeply on what's ahead. But secondly, we obey the Father. This is 14 to, where are we? 18. Listen in. Um, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Or, or literally, I don't know if you know this, but literally it isn't forefathers, it's fathers. So that's a clue, right? So I've already given you the answer. I want a little bit of feedback here, okay? What's the theme going through those verses? He asks rhetorically. <laughs> children and, and fathers, right? Thank you. Children and fathers. Can you see it? Um, as obedient children, verse 14, if you call on him as father, verse 17, verse 18, inherited from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers or fathers. There's this theme of father's children. The assumption that Peter's working with is, is it's a truism. It's a truism. How do we, how do children become the people that they grow up to be? They're shaped by their fathers. We are who we are because of mum and dad. Now that works both positively and negatively, doesn't it? Some of us really want to follow after mum and dad. Some of us really don't want to follow after mum and dad, but the sort of the, the, the negative power of their example propels us into being the people that we want to be. And you see, one way or the other, you know, like father, like son, that's, that's the point that Peter's making. That's what he's working with here. Where do we get our values and our principles and our priorities, our innate sense of right and wrong? Well, it's shaped by our fathers and not just our biological fathers, but our cultural fathers. The culture we grow up in fathers us. I grew up in Flanethi, 
which none of you have ever heard of. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, what that did for me. I thank you very much. You've been there. It's, don't, go, don't go there on holiday. <laughs> don't leave your, light, your wallet lying around in Fnessy. Um, here's, here's what Fnessy did for me. Here's how Fnessy fathered me. Number one, it taught me how to shoplift from a young age. Number two, it gave me a, an, an, an instinct to be incredibly biased when I'm watching rugby. One-eyed, they would call us. Our culture fathers us in good and bad ways too, so there's so much I can say about this. But, but here's the point that Peter's making. Peter, all the way through this letter, has been saying, you've got a new father now? You were fathered by the culture. You were fathered by mum and dad. You've got a new father now. Chapter 1, verse 3. One who has loved you. Loved you. From before the foundation of the earth. One who is blessed to show you mercy. Blessed to show you mercy. Fear him, Peter says. Call on him as father, fear him. Now, I don't know how you feel about that word. We struggled with the word holy, right? But we're struggling, we're really struggling with the word fear. So let's not misunderstand it. What, what Peter's not saying is, I want you to cower in the corner at the thought of him. He's not saying that. He's not saying like, you know, beware your dad. He might throw an empty can at you. He's saying, fear him. Don't take this father lightly. Obey him. He's shown you such mercy, knowing the devastation that sin would cause, knowing the tragedy that it would bring into this world. What did this father do? He gave up his only son to perish on a cross so that we would have a way out, so that we would know life and not death. Obey him. Obey him. Know that he is with you. Like the sons. I occasionally know the experience of walking in the room and seeing my son drop it. He straightens up, he drops whatever he's doing, he just wises up very quickly. Occasionally, it's not, not often enough. Dad walks in the room and the kids stop messing around. That, that's sort of what Peter's on about. Dad's in the room. Your father's with you. Be in awe of him. Be in awe of him. Fear him. Be aware of him. Be aware of him. He's with you. He's with you tonight. He's with us here. He's with you when you go home to whomever or whatever. He's with you when you can't sleep tonight. He's with you tomorrow morning. He's with you when you go to work or when you can't find work. He's with you on the way to college. He's, he's with you on the way to the appointment. He's with you on the way to the doctors. He's with you. Don't forget that he is with you. That's the point. And he's calling you to be holy, to follow after your big brother Jesus, to follow his example, and to bear the family likeness. Holiness. Be like your big brother. And as you do it, feel his pleasure with every step you take towards holiness. Good. Good verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So blessed be happy is, is another way of putting that. This father is the happiest being in all existence. And the thing that makes him happiest is showing you mercy. Like he's, he's just brimming with the stuff for you. He looks upon us and he is delighted to send his son and to give his spirit to us. Now, the reason I'm saying that is this joyful God delights to show mercy. Can you really, do you really picture him scowling? I know you do. I know you think that he's disappointed. I know you think that he's tutting. I know that he is, I know that you think that he is paying more attention to your failure than to any of your successes. I, I don't think that is possible. You see, as you take steps towards holiness, this father is cheering us on. My wife and I happen to have been there and we happen to have filmed it. The moment my eldest took his first steps, we were way too tired by number three. We were there watching Griff take his first few steps. Here are my three observations. Number one, I looked a lot younger then. And when I said that to my church, I said, oh, we're not, do you want to see it? Let's just, come on, let's just, does that work? Can you make that work? I'll give it five more seconds. There we go. All right, well, there we go. That was my eldest at his, during his first steps. Now, what's about to happen is he takes two steps and then he falls on his face. So there's my second observation. My one-year-old was a terrible walker. He was terrible at it. I mean, it's barely called walking. It's just, it's just enthusiastic falling. That's what it was. My third observation, mum and dad didn't care because we were too busy celebrating his walking. We were cheering him on. I mean, honestly, the noise in that video. Do you think, what, do you, I mean, could you, do you really think that I'm going to sort of get in his face and say, you're rubbish at this? And we lifted him up and we danced around because my little boy had taken a few steps. Why would we say the father's any different? You really think that he's condemning your failure? The happiest being in all existence is celebrating your steps, feel his pleasure. Whatever, if, like he's celebrating even if you're facing in the right direction. <laughs> If you leave tonight convicted that something needs to change, just, just, and tonight you just get on your knees and you just say, Lord, I want to face in the right direction tomorrow morning. I don't have the courage to make the steps out of this anymore, but I want to face in the right direction. Feel his pleasure. And thirdly, this is so important, know that you were ransomed by Jesus Christ. So verses 18 to 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First thing we've got to say about that verse is it's an incredible statement of your worth. You were bought at a price, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No, you realize Therefore, what you mean to the creator. You realize what you're worth to the creator. For your sake, he says. Verse 20, he was foreknown. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He came into this world in the last times for the sake of you. He did this for you. 
God gave up the most precious thing that exists, like silver or gold. He's, he's, he's like saying, he's not just saying, you know, precious things like silver or gold because, you know, he's, he's going like there's, this world has nothing compared to what he's willing to give for you. And he gave it up for you. Now, for you, like some of us need to know that, right? We always need to know that because I don't need any help to be down on myself. I don't need any help to be disappointed with myself. I don't need any help, right, to hate myself. It's just been an instinct ever since I was born. I feel disappointing. I feel the disappointment. I feel disdain. I'm not, a, I'm not surprised when others reject me. I'm ashamed because of a choice I made recently, because of choices I used to make but I can't get rid of. I feel worthless. And my whole life is like this offset attempt, to, this attempt to offset my worthlessness by doing something to make me feel good and better, but it doesn't last long, right? Feel worthless, not to him. You're not to him. You're more precious than silver or gold. How do I know? Because he gave his son for you. He gave the highest price for you. But I don't think that is the point that Peter's making. I think the real point that Peter's making is, is, has got some real impact here, actually. Peter uses some very specific technical words in this passage. Here they are, ransomed, lamb without blemish. I mean, I hope that's ringing a bell, right? You're doing a Bible overview course on a Sunday evening. That should be echoing something, right? What Peter's doing is he's, he's echoing the Exodus story. He's telling the story, or he's bringing to mind the story of God's people ransomed from slavery to their Egyptian masters. You know the story, as the, as the lamb's blood was shed, as the Passover's blood was shed, the people sheltered underneath that blood and, and their freedom was bought. Their slavery was over. And what is Peter doing? Why is he echoing that story? Well, he's, he's telling us, you've been ransomed as well. Your slavery is over too. Through the blood of Jesus, not the blood of a Passover lamb, through the blood of Jesus, your slavery is over. Now, slavery to what? Slavery to sin. Slavery to everything that keeps you from living a holy life. Everything that keeps you from holiness, your slavery to this is done with. You realize how good this is? Maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're convinced, right? I want, to, I want to live this holy life that Jesus is calling me to. But you're also thinking, but I can't. Because I've tried. And you know, Lou, nothing ever changes. I'm the same person I used to be. And I just keep on returning to that thing that I wish I never did. But now I just keep on doing it. And, and it feels like, what does it, feel, what does it feel like? It feels like slavery, doesn't it? It feels like all the master has to do is bark my name and here I come running. There's something between me and holiness, right? There's something between you and holiness. And it won't wash out. It's a habit or it's an instinct or it's a relationship or it's an addiction or it's a mindset or it's a fear of the people if I stop doing this or it's a greed for something or it's, or it's a lust for someone or it's an anger towards someone or something and it's keeping you from holiness and it feels like you can't escape it. 
It feels like you're, you're bound to it. Well, I've got good news for you. You have been ransomed. You've been ransomed from these, from these futile ways inherited from our fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. All Saints Peckham, I've got good news for you. Your slavery is over. You are free. Jesus has bought your freedom in full. And you can rise and live the life that God has called you to. I want to pray for you. Will you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, we are, we are loved before the foundation of the earth. Before we fell into sin, before we lived that out, we were loved before we said yes to you and failed to walk with you. We have been loved and because we are loved, we have been rescued. Father, we have been ransomed. We praise you for Jesus, who has ransomed us from everything that has enslaved us, from all sin and death, from all that would take us to hell. Christ has died and Christ is risen. Help us, please, to know the joy and the life of his ransom. And I pray, Father, for all saints Peckham, that they would be a holy people, a royal priesthood in the midst of a dark world, and that they would walk with big brother Jesus for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening.